When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The flame had actually breached the cockpit down below in the footwell. My feet were now on fire. By the time I got to about 500 feet, the fire is about mid-chest. So in other words, I'm suddenly about gas mark five in the oven. 20 feet, I managed to get up onto the seat, clamber out through that now open door aperture. I kind of got onto the wing, momentarily snapped my hands above my head in the sort of prayer position, and I just went for it. I took a giant leap off the left-hand wing and I was probably still running in an estimated 30 knots. Welcome to The Andy Rowe Show. We're opening season three of the podcast with the most terrifying tale of survival against all odds. Jamie Hull was flying solo in his aircraft when it caught fire high above the ground. Cooking inside the aircraft, covered in flames, Jamie climbed onto the wing and jumped to the ground just before the plane crashed and exploded. You're going to hear a play-by-play account of how he did it and how he survived. I hope you enjoy the episode. You know I read a lot of books for this podcast, and one particular book that I read talks a lot about nutrition and making sure that the first thing you put into your body when you wake up is packed full of nutrients. So we've brought on Athletic Greens, so helping bring us season three of the Andy Rowe Show. And I've actually started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens. One scoop of it contains 75 vitamins, minerals, superfoods, and probiotics that are designed to efficiently absorb into your body. I was taking multivitamins and a probiotic, but I've stopped and just take AG1 every morning when I get up. The stuff has everything I need. Honestly, my energy level's gone through the roof. And I feel like I'm thinking a lot clearer now as well. And Athletic Greens is also giving a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash rugby and take ownership of your health and upgrade your routine. Jamie Hull, thank you very much for coming on the show, mate. Hey, Andy. Uh, yeah, great to be here, and thanks for having me on. Man, it's such a crazy story. The book is unbelievable. We're going ha- we're gonna to assume no one's read it and shock the shit out of them with what went down. August 19th, 2007. You're in the prime of your life. You were at flight school in Florida. The last day before you're about to go off to uh, SAS, go off to on deployment with the SAS to Afghanistan. Talk me through that day. So you go up, you got you got flight number one. Talk me through that. Well, that was at the beginning of the course, obviously. So probably a good sort of solid month or four weeks or so before the actual day of the incident that you mentioned, 19th of August, 2007. It was hot. I mean, it was stinking hot, hot as hell, Florida in the middle of summer. And typically, you know, I'd head out onto the, the heat of the tarmac uh, with a couple of bits, so my flight sort of wallet with the the maps and, and various bits in there, as well as this little vial, this little plastic small vial, and I could poke that 
up and under the belly of the aircraft to take a small sample or solution of the fuel. So the fuel specifically was low lead blue aviation gas or avgas. And it had a reason low lead because if you held it, if you took a sample and held it up to the light, it did have like a, a faint blue sort of tinge to it, but very subtle. I remember one of the flight instructors would say to me when I first did this and first taken the sample from the belly of the tank under the fuselage of the, the light aircraft. So I've got half a vial of fuel and I'm looking at it for any contaminants. So any sort of particles that are in there, which could indicate, you know, that you've got uh, sort of dirty or, or dodgy fuel contaminants. But it was generally always clean. I looked at it and held it up to the light. And I said to the instructor, what am I supposed to do with this? Where do, where do I dispose? He just said, oh, just, just chuck it on the tarmac. Yeah. And no sooner as you throw this small vial of fuel against the tarmac, it just instantly kind of evaporated because the heat was so, was so hot. Um, intense out there in, in Florida on the, on the runway. And then, of course, I'd go around, do my walk around, do all the checks, get into the aircraft, and then um, slowly but surely uh, go through the, the pre-flight checks according to the instruction that I had. And this kind of motion, this carried on for days and then subsequent weeks on end as my training sort of built up and up. And then eventually, before I knew it, a few weeks in, I was then qualified to fly solo and then still going through the motions, but this time on my own without the instructor. And then it led me up until the day of the incident, 19th of August, 2007. And it was approximately midday. And so off I went. I went through all the motions that I previously described. It was another sort of groundhog day, so to speak, because I'd been going through that again and again in total and pure repetition. Yeah, there's and no way you can get it wrong. You do it that many times, you're doing it over you, and over again. This is the thing. You're kind of following the same sort of drill and the same format, and you're working towards, uh, at this stage now, a learned process. And so I got the opportunity again on, on that particular day, got to that active threshold point, got the permission to take off, and then I go full throttle. And then I'm racing down the runway. As, that's as fast as a light aircraft will allow you to go. When you get to about 55 knots indicated on the airspeed indicator, you can gently pull back, in, in this case, the left stick between my knees, pull back gently on that, and you'll feel that kind of tension, that, that lift as the air sort of picks up and, and grabs literally underneath the wing and creates the, the lift that you need. And you're, you're full throttle. So remember, you've got that drive against the wind mm. and, and you get the lift and off you go. And then I'm climbing through the airspace. And that was my memoir looking back. At what point did you realize something wasn't quite right? Yeah, so on this one particular day, working within the pattern, and I'd been out of the pattern briefly and I'd come back in and everything was fine. Mm. And the flight duration had been perhaps approaching 30 minutes in total on, on this particular occasion. People will be wondering maybe what the pattern is. So when a pattern is something, so planes go round and round an airport. So airplane, yeah, si that's, simply that's a put pattern. a pattern is a designated route yeah. or a direction of travel that the pilots will take. So as I rejoin the pattern, I'm coming downwind. I give my position to the um, air traffic control below. And then I make a turn to come into crosswind. And it was at that point when I looked out my left-hand canopy window and I saw a thin streak of visible yellow-orange flame. And um, How high were you at this point? So I'm 1,000 feet in the, within 1, the pattern. Still 1,000 feet. Okay. Yeah. Remember, I should be between 1,000 and 1,200, but I always made a point of flying 
pretty much on the nose of a thousand feet. That was so you're one thousand feet above the ground. You see a flame outside of your window on the plane. Yeah. So the flame is emanating or originating from the front portion of the fuselage. It's clear to me that it's a, it's a thin streak of visible yellow sort of orange flame. And I realize it's probably coming from one of the knacker ducts in the front portion of the, the fuselage like engine casing, which surrounds and shrouds the engine. It's being streamlined. The engine's on fire. The engine's on fire. That was clear to me. So I then had to think on my feet and form, if you like, a rational plan about what I was going to do. And I won't deny it, and I've always said this, and I've told my story many times, that initially I had some degree of panic and fluster going on in my mind straight away thinking, Jesus, this is for real. This is the flame that I can see. This is not an emergency. This is no drill. And I've got to get this aircraft down. I remember the instructors would always say to me, if you've got a problem, fly the damn aircraft. And they, they would... These words from one of the instructors reverberated and they echoed in my mind. And for, for real, on this occasion, I had a problem. Real life, real scenario. Got to get the aircraft down. I think most people would be panicking in that situation. I was panicking. I don't think you were on your own there. For sure. I mean, I was a pilot and I was doing the business as a pilot and I'd been doing so for probably only about eight days solo. But remember, I'd been flying for about a month and it felt like I'd been there for, for longer because it was a full-time intensive training process and on this particular occasion it absolutely shocked me when I first saw that and I struggled to almost focus because you know in the bright Florida sunshine now about 12 30 hours so just after midday in the heat of the Florida summer which can get pretty intense Mm. with the the level of sort of you know intensity of the sun out there and I was literally struggling to to actually to focus on what it was but it was fire But then quite simply, as I'm descending and as I'm watching altimeter spin down now, so I turn again 90 degrees left turn into wind now with the active runway that I'm supposed to land on in the distance below me now. And I'm descending, descending, and I'm watching altimeter spin down from 1,000 feet through 900, through 800, through 700. And the flame in that final stage, so as I turned into wind, it actually breached the cockpit where I looked down towards where my feet were down below in the footwell, in the internal chamber of the cockpit, my feet were now on fire. Literally, the flame had breached the cockpit and the feet were burning. Jesus. So, But luckily, I had sort of, similar to what I've got on now, sort of stout, sort of walking boots, sort of suede-type walking boots with, you know, rubber soles. And the flame was starting to lap around the boots and the socks. And at first, you're not really feeling it on the feet, right, because you've got protection. But guess what? I've got these kind of like cotton shorts to the knee, like cotton cargo pants that, you know, gentlemen wear in the summertime. Big problem because my lower limbs were exposed to the burning flames. And as I'm descending, the flame is building up because it's breached and the flame was getting higher and higher. By the time I got to about 500 feet, so I'm half the height in the drop and suddenly the fire is about mid chest. So in other words, I'm suddenly about gas mark five in the oven. You get that? The fire has grown that much. You're, you're getting cooked. Suddenly, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm literally on fire and I'm starting to cook within that tiny two-seater cockpit. And admittedly, that's why I had a lot of fluster going on and, and some initial panic. But then <laughs> yeah. for me, it was like a light bulb moment. And don't ask me why or how or where, 
but perhaps the simplicity of it, it just falls back to the training. And luckily my mind flicked back to the training and I thought, you know what? This is what I've got to do. The, remember that the American instructor, above all, if you've got a problem, fly the damn aircraft, mm. pilot the aircraft, fly the aircraft. So I, f- I thought back to the emergency protocol. I've got to fly the aircraft, follow the emergency drill because it's a, re- a real life emergency. So I did exactly that. And it sounds complex, but actually it's a pretty simple drill. It's just a full shutdown. You just follow the sequence from left to right on the dashboard of this two-seater training aircraft. So I turn the key to the ignition off, the metal key. I turn the red switches, so the magneto switches, Alpha and Bravo, off, off. I turn the master switch off, the lights off, the strobes off. In the center column, there was a fuel pump. I flick that switch to the off position, and there was a fuel selector valve. I rotate that gently through 90 degrees to the off position. Everything from left to right, off, off, off in sequence. And then literally, I'm sort of below 500 feet now and descending, descending. I'm trying to kind of pace that, but I'm conscious that I've got to get the aircraft down. So the nose is a tad heavy, and I kept sort of gently flaring and sort of pulling back on the stick to sort of gently flare and cut some of the airspeed, reduce some of that airspeed. But then I was conscious that I didn't want to stall. So I'd put the nose forward again, just push the stick forward again. So flaring, push forward, flaring, push forward. And I'm trying to glide in as best I can. And I'm sort of virtually knocked off the throttle once I approach the threshold for the landing. And all the time I'm scrubbing off airspeed, I'm now 300 feet, 200 feet. And about 100 feet, removed the headset, threw it in the opposite footwell on the right-hand side and just to get it out of the way. So I was worried about the flex lead cable being a hindrance and perhaps getting caught around my neck. So ditched the headset. Gently to my left, I remember carefully maneuvering the handle for the door because it was a bit of a, a tricky sort of component to open that canopy door to my left. And I went to open it and it was still stuck fast because of the external wind. Mm. Then I had to elbow it with my left elbow, sort of lean across and sort of palm strike it and punch it with the heel of my hand in order to get pressure on it to pop the door. The door then flicked up to the vertical position, a bit like a sort of a Lamborghini style. And now it was open, but I'm sort of 100 feet, less than 100 feet, still descending, still traveling in. And I'm focused on one thing, if you like, and one thing only. I'm looking ahead with the sort of eyeball, focusing, looking ahead, looking left, looking right, looking ahead. I'm looking for hazards. I'm looking for obstacles. I'm looking for anything that was in my path. And I've purposely veered away now from the concrete runway and I'd steered towards a sort of a grassy stretch because I knew that the grass was going to afford me a softer landing because of recent torrential Florida sort of rainfall, heavy rainfall, which had saturated the ground sort of pre-flight. It was now sunny and hot again, but I knew the ground was going to be soft to give me some absorption for the landing. And then literally in the last moment, so... 50 feet, I, I pretty much managed to unbuckle the, the, the harness. So it was a three-point harness over left shoulder, right shoulder, and over the waist. Unbuckled the harness, wriggled out of that harness, just tweaked the stick within the last moments for the correct sort of position and profile for the aircraft. I knocked off the throttle completely. Remember, it's been full shutdown, no engine, so there's no drive on, on the prop. Mm. But the prop, that said, was still spinning at, at a few thousand RPM in its sort of immediate sort of wind down and I'm still gliding in remember 
And at 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, checking, checking, checking the whole time, 20 feet thereabouts. And I was like Jack Rabbit, quick as a flash. I managed to, being quite sort of lightweight and nimble, I managed to get up onto the seat in the small two-seater cockpit, the left-hand seat of the aircraft, clamber out through that now open door aperture, kind of keep a low profile, clamber, climb over the door lip between the seat and the left wing, because it was a low wing, from the seat to the left wing, clamber out. And then I, I, I kind of got onto the wing, momentarily snapped my hands above my head in the sort of prayer position, and I just went for it. I took a giant leap off the left hand, so the trailing edge of the left hand wing, and snapped my feet and knees together, and I probably jumped approximately 15 feet, so one five feet, and I was probably still running in an estimated 30 knots traveling through that airspace. How fast would be 30 knots? And One knot is about 1.2 miles per hour. So it works out about, I think it's about 33 miles an hour or so. It's not, it's not a tremendous speed, but if you think about it, imagine a car going down the local high street yeah. at 33 miles per hour or thereabouts. Yeah. And you're on the roof of that car. Yeah. Or imagine a van. <laughs> imagine like a, a Mercedes Sprinter with a tall yeah. roof. Yeah. And you're on the roof of the van. And the van's on and fire. And the van's going down the high street at night when there's not a lot of traffic. So. Yeah. And it's doing 33 mile an hour down the high street. You're on the roof of that tall Mercedes Sprinter van and you're, you go for it. And you jump off the top of the van into the long grass at the side of the street. That's pretty much the stunt that I pulled off the, by the skin of my teeth. The pose that you put, you know, the hands above your head and that you put your knees together and jumped off because you were in the in the paratroops, right? So is that yeah, where I that was, came Was that where exactly, that came from? Yeah, so for all intents and purposes, I was a, um, a, a very well-trained paratrooper. And so for me, the idea or the notion to jump from the burning cockpit, as it were, on that particular day, it actually came quite clearly and obviously to me because I thought, okay, there's a solution here. I know how to jump, and I reckon I can jump clean, albeit I need to get the hell out of here, and I need to do this now. So I waited for the right time, and luckily I guess I've always probably been quite gifted with sort of hand-eye coordination. I was always pretty slick when it came to sort of hand... I'm not saying I was the world's best gamer, you know, sort of video mm. gamer, but I was pretty good, I remember, as a soldier with sort of good hand-eye coordination, running around, you know jumping in and out of trenches and doing all the training and drills and rehearsals and, and everything we did. And I was pretty good at para. You know, I was lightweight, I was nimble, and I was kind of th quick on my feet. And I could sort of think and act in the practical sense quite quickly. Mm. And that's what made me a pretty good sort of operator doing what I was doing. So the jump actually came relatively simply in, in the sort of uh, decision-making process. But I guess the other side of it is ha having the courage to do that is, is probably the trickier thing. But the, the, if you like, the, the motivation, should we say, and the will to do that came a lot easier, let me tell you. Why? Because I was on fire. Yeah, that would help. That would help. But it was also, the, when you got out onto the wing, you, there was even more fire out there, wasn't there, before you jumped? For, for sure. So momentarily, when I got on that left wing... That was the worst of it because, in, if you like, within the confines of the cockpit behind the, um, the windshield, the windscreen, I was somewhat protected. All right, there was fire building up from below, but it was kind of gently building up and it kind of got more aggressive towards the end. When I opened that door in the last moments, there was an increased sort of wind 
resistance coming in mm. and if you like growing the flames and feeding the flames but when i got on the wing momentarily when i stood on that wing and balanced just before i leapt i got the backwash of the prop so the prop remember was still spinning and if you like i got the backwash so remember what the prop does in an aircraft it's designed to carry if you like to draw in wind from the front as the aircraft traveling forward but spit it out the back yeah and that's what drives an aircraft so it's like a blowtorch it was absolutely like a giant blowtorch for for a few split seconds or whatever that duration was when I got on the wing. Hence why I've got this kind of really aggressive right side dominant burn because I, I, I clambered out onto the left wing. So therefore I turned to the left and therefore presented the right side of my body. So scalp, sort of shoulder, sort of right leg, all the way down to the, 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 right, the right foot, if you will. That was what got the... Um, the more aggressive burn for me. And, and then once I hit the ground, as it were, with the long Florida grass, it was probably, you know, yay long. So I was able to long. use that as friction instinctively. It didn't, it just came naturally. So I rolled around sort of sausage shape really aggressively, back and forward, back and forward, left So you right. can remember all this? You weren't like... No, no, I remember it implicitly because I remember being on fire and I remember having to extinguish the fire on my... My shorts and my t-shirt and my skin was on fire. You've jumped onto the grass and you're rolling around the grass trying to get, get Trust rid of me, fire. I was rolling around in the long grass like a man possessed. And then literally in those last moments, I remember even thinking, okay, I've done it. I've extinguished the flame and my clothing is no longer on fire. Guess what? My scalp was still on fire. So when I paused, I remember thinking, I can feel that. And it was like my scalp was still burning on the right side, like a Roman candle. So I remember pat, pat, pat really aggressively and I remember having to also lean across with left hand pat out my right shoulder it was still on fire and there was a gaping hole in my t-shirt um, so I was having to aggressively pat all that out and then finally I thought I could relax and of course everything was extinguished yes but then I instinctively remembered oh shit the aircraft and then I remember turning in the sort of fetal position really quickly and focusing on where I believed the aircraft was, the angle of attack and where she was kind of still running in. And in the last moments, I just caught glimpse of the aircraft, still airborne, and I physically witnessed my own aircraft in the distance, probably only 70 feet or so. And she was now probably about your height, Andy. So, you know, a tall man, six foot or so. Mm. Prop was about two meters above the deck and left wing. So nose heavy, she was nose heavy, left wing down and just about to imminently make contact with the ground and I witnessed th that last focus and, and that last moment and the crash the unmistakable crashing crumpling noise and then there was a short delay a bit like you'd expect in a movie or something and then literally it was like a maybe it felt like about 10 seconds perhaps it was slightly less because of the tension a short delay and then all of a sudden an almighty explosion and that was probably I don't know two 250 feet into the air and luckily, on the ground, I managed to sort of protect myself from that explosion, sort of over, you know, hands over face, lying in the fetal position, sort of in the long grass. But the, the intensity of the explosion was just off the charts. It was unbelievable. And the shockwave from that came through me and back again, and it was just hideous and indescribable. I can't describe it to you. The heat and the inferno at that stage... I just about managed to crawl away maybe 10 feet in the long grass, like leopard crawl through the long grass. 
And in doing so, I, I lacerated my face to pieces in the long grass. It was a, the Florida grass for anyone that knows, like if they've been to golf courses in Florida, right? And played, it's I not like the but... nice grass in England or Scotland, which is fine. Yeah, when we enjoy the garden here, the grass in Florida is really coarse and really thick. So imagine long grass and I'm leopard crawl. Sort of through that grass, it just lacerated my face completely. My elbows, my kneecaps, because remember I had shorts on. And so more, more trauma, more insult. I managed to get 10 feet through the long grass and I think, and I was just done. I mean, my body was utterly spent. And then I remember getting on my knees and now probably 80, 85 feet now from the burning wreckage. I turn on my knees to sort of face the inferno of the wreckage now in the distance. Now the explosion had simmered down, but it was burning wreckage. It was hideous. Mm. And I'm trying to protect myself and I'm trying to process it all and take it all in. And I couldn't go any further. I mean, I was done. And at that stage, as I've described it, there was like a tsunami of pain that washed over me. And what I surmise from this is that all my nerve endings were shot to pieces. But the pain was just, just again, off the charts. So before, was, before that, the adrenaline had like kept the pain away. Sure. And, and so then it's suddenly your body realized that you have been absolutely fried to bits like absolutely so i was mullered i was a man on the edge a man on a knife edge yeah hence the book that i wrote life on a thread that's where i got it from how bad were the burns the burns were were terrible so i was for the record in the action of that jump and the stunt that i pulled off that i described in order to get out and exit the burning aircraft during flight i was 63 percent third and fourth degree burns. Now the fourth degree burns meant that I was burned down to the shin on my lower limb. If the camera might pick up on that. The, the shin area wow. was so deeply burned because it faced the brunt of the burn within the cockpit. So the surgeons were forced to, to excavate a fasciotomy for the surgery. So they stripped out the tibialis anterior, the shin muscle and the deep perineal, which is the deep nerve that runs behind that muscle. And so I was pretty unfortunate that I lost a lot of that. And the upshot was my feet ended up getting sort of partially paralyzed in the process. Right. But lucky for me, I had some brilliant surgeons in America and I kept my legs. They were going to do what they call bilateral amputation. And I would have been a double amputee. So I'm bloody lucky that I kept my legs under the circumstances. That was your mum's doing, wasn't it? She, yeah, she, she fought a good sort of fight against the surgeons and sort of dug deep to... Um, to basically um, persuade them to do everything they could sort of outside of the box to, to save my legs. It was an easy thing, right, for them to simply amputate and then sort of graft the stump areas, so we say, you know, process me through the hospital, get me out of the door. And she put up a massive fight, my mother, bless her, and said, look, over my dead body, you're going to take his legs, more or less. If you take his legs on top of all his burns, and I had internal injuries, I'd ruptured my large intestine, lacerated my liver i had a uh, multiple facial fractures from a secondary impact so feet first when i landed but then thrust forward face butted the grass and i broke my nose had a bilateral what they call super orbital eye socket fractures so here right above the eye that was both fractures nose my left finger sort of um, hit the ground awkwardly that hyperextended and fractured we could probably see there on camera yeah and uh, i think i bust a couple of ribs as well in the jump More than so likely, i was yeah. 
messed up. Yeah. I, and, and the worst of it was the burn. I was 63% third and fourth degree. What does third degree burn actually mean? Because I hear that well, a lot. Well, the degree, so for people that aren't sure, I mean, you can Google this, it's all there. But in essence, um, the degree is to do with the layering. So skin is a multitude of layers. So if you if you break it down, the very external layer is what they call epidermis. Right. And then you might get a graze or a scratch and it kind of just nicks it. Yeah. You might bleed slightly from that. But that's just epidermis that you pretty much cut slightly. So that'd be like first degree. Yeah, first degree. Second degree, it might be a deeper sort of graze or something. You've fallen off your bike in the street, yeah? Right. You little kids falling off the push bike in the street. And we've all done it when we were kids, right? And that little graze that you, you come home sort of crying to, to your mother about it and she sort of patches you up. And probably around second bit degree. Bit of Savlon, couple, yeah. of, couple of Band-Aids, jobs are good. And yeah, that's probably a, more or less a second degree sort of wound or a burn. Yeah, so it's, you're talking epidermis and dermis. So a third degree is when it's slightly deeper and it's like the fatty tissue and a burn because of the heat and the intensity and then the nature of the trauma can damage epithelial or the more sort of fatty substrate. That's the third degree. And in a third degree burn, you can lose all three layers and quite a lot of the fat tissue and it can be gone permanently. Hence why you need grafting to cover that. But a fourth degree, in essence, is when you go all three layers, including the sort of fatty tissue, and it goes beyond that and it goes down towards um, typically bone. So you've got exposed bone and I had that on my shin. So pretty much the length of my, sh my shin Remember, I'd had shorts on in the cockpit, but the, yeah. where it breached, I had the, the fire for the longer period on my shins, hence the fourth degree burns down there. So it was burned to the bone. So you had 65% third and fourth degree burns. Correct. Wow. Nasty. When you were lying on the ground and you know, you've got all these other injuries as well, did you think you were dying? Did you think you would, this has got to be it, surely. I've gone, like, there's 100%. nothing else I can possibly go through that, yeah, that could 100%. kill me. Yeah, 100%. I mean, literally, if I, let, let's say, to give you an analogy, I mean, you know, if what had just happened and I'd still been able to sort of walk and talk and go about my business, trust me, on the flip side, so to speak, if there'd been a sort of parallel universe and there'd been a betting shop there, trust me, I'd have walked into that bookies yeah, you'd and, and on put a you. massive bet on the fact that Jamie Hull will be dead in 10 minutes. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because I had a, an extensive knowledge also, this was the irony of what had just happened to me when it happened, because I was actually, so I specialized as a, as a medic yeah, okay, within right, yeah. my role within uh, UKSF. So I had a, 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 a greater understanding and an extensive knowledge of sort of medical. So if you like, I was a sort of a trained, the equivalent of a trained sort of street sort of paramedic. And I understood what big burns and what third degree burns and so meant for a human body, me. It just happened to me. And I thought, no way that I'm going to survive sort of, you know, 10, 20 minutes down the road, I'll be a goner. Mm. And I did not believe that I was going to be able to hold on. But somehow deep within... Did you want to hold on though? No, not necessarily. But, but I was, don't say that in a bad way. I'm just thinking... No, like, I understand what you're getting at. I mean, trust me, I knew what had just happened. I knew that I'd just been, for want of a better description, absolutely annihilated, mullered as far as, you know, you can draw out words. I, I was, like I said, uh, given the gravitas of the injury, I was now a man on the very edge of humanity. I reached the very lowest ebb of, of sort of human existence in that respect, in terms of, you know, what you can tolerate. Mm. And I knew that I had moments to go. And, and in all honesty, I went through three phases. So on this part of the, the, the discussion, 
for the record, I went through three phases of psychological rationale over what had just happened. Number one, anger and utter despair. It was the most abject anger and despair. So, I mean, I was screaming blue murder, sort of blasphemy, etc., etc. It was all coming out. The anger was there. I mean, literally, I could have taken on 10 men with that anger and fought my way through 10 men in the pub. Mm. I was so damn angry at what had just happened. I knew that life was over. But there was a switch within the space of just a few minutes. And if I throw that out to you, for example, what do you think that might have been? My mind switched to a different sort of thought process or rationale. I guess maybe you felt sorry for yourself as well. Maybe you thought, fuck, I'm dying here. I'm sad about this. Yeah. Yeah. You're pretty much on the nose. And the way that I described that second switch in my mind, so psychologically, was simply grief. Human absolute respect. Grief. The most abject grief that you can imagine. So I went from anger and real... Like, I mean, I was the incredible Hulk. That's how angry I was. To the most significant grief that just washed over me. And I mean, it was hideous grief that I'd never, ever experienced in all my born it was days. The death of yourself. I didn't even know that I could experience that much grief in one moment. Yeah. And it just came flooding out of me. The emotion, the, the turmoil. And I felt so damned hideously sorry for myself. And I didn't think that I was going to be able to, you know hold on with that amount of grief alone it's a lot to process in such a short amount of time we're talking like massive this is like a five minute window right yeah for sure we're talking just minutes after so it was so intense the hideous event and the drama of of what just unfolded you know the immediate response absolute anger off the charts to hideous grief the most uncontrollable inconsolable grief and then there was a third switch and again do you want to have a stab in the in the dark of what that might have been? So, are there are there three switches in total? Yeah, there's three I'm, switches. I'm guessing the third switch has got to be acceptance, surely. Yeah, more or less. So, what I've described as resignation. Resignation. Because there's I'm nothing done. you can do. Yeah. And so, what could I do? What was the only rational thing that I could think of was just to to lay down, if you like, to take it. And that's pretty much exactly what I did. So, in that that said, and in, in that moment, I actually remember carefully leaning forward. So I'm sort of sat now in the long grass. The the wreckage now is simmering down in the distance, sort of 80 plus feet away. And I go for my laces on my boots and I carefully undo the laces. And I tuck my laces into the, each shoe as I always did, you know, at night. I take my boots off, put it under the bed, say. Took my socks off, so I peeled those off of the lower legs where the, the, sort, of, the sort of thin sort of sports socks that I was wearing tucked those gently into, you know, left shoe, right shoe, all neat. Because this is my last sort of uh, semblance of having control, right, perhaps, and having order. I don't know why I did it. It was just a just a kind of um, an autonomous reaction from myself. Collect my shoes with, say, my right hand, pinch those together and place it by the right-hand side of me. And I then lay back in the long grass. I remember putting my hands across my, my chest because I've got this hideous pain going on in the torso area, because little did I realize that I'd actually ruptured the large intestine, in the colon in the jump and lacerated my liver, which was bleeding and hemorrhaging internally. So this hideous pain inside my gut, like someone had taken a baseball bat to my torso, it was that bad. And I lay back 
hands across my, my chest, arms across, and I remember tucking my knees up in front of me to, in a bid to try and alleviate some of the pain yeah, in my torso. Yeah, yeah. That was the kind of more comfortable position. And I remember hyperventilating because of the trauma. I'm sort of really hyperventilating. And I grew colder and I grew weaker. And in my mind, I've sort of resigned to the inevitable and what's coming. And the energy and the heat energy, if you like, of my body was flooding out of me. Why? Because I just sustained massive third degree burns. So the heat energy from my body, the energy is flooding out of me now and it's dissipating. I'm losing it and I'm holding on with everything that I've got. But it's almost though I didn't want to hold on. With the resignation, I just wanted to check out. But something in me, something deep within me, something innate, call it what you will, survival instinct, you know, life on a thread, hanging in the balance. And then all of a sudden, maybe 10 minutes had gone by now, total and elapsed. I'd had some, some time psychologically to process it, remember? And all of a sudden, I heard the sirens. And all of a sudden, woo, 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 woo. And they're coming from me in the distance. And I'm thinking, well, they must be coming from me. Because what else has just happened in this sleepy little part of Florida, right? So, and they grew louder. The siren grew louder. And, but I couldn't see because, in truth, uh, there was the reaction to my face with the trauma from the burns. And my eyes had sort of closed up, you know, like a sort of a Rocky Balboa type scenario. But I wasn't, you know, on round 12. I'd kind of, I'd absolutely, you know, annihilated from the burn. So my face was badly blistered, already swelling really heavily and my eyes were closing up and I'm hyperventilating in shock I'm very cold I'm very weak the sirens grew louder but what I could hear still it sounded like a full-scale sort of Hollywood style emergency response and indeed there was you know a couple of fire engines on scene there was ambulance there was uh, local police and I couldn't see what was going on but I could hear everything and before too long I could hear the chatter of emergency radios in the background and that sort of chatter, 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 doo -doo -doo, you know, and these radios going off. And I knew it was obviously full scale. It was me that, that they, they were there for. And before too long, the paramedics were saying stuff in my ear. They put me onto a stretcher. They, I remember feeling some straps go around my sort of torso and sort of over the upper limb. And they carried me short distance. They put me into the back of an ambulance. The ambulance I could feel was driving over the roughshod ground, probably the grassy area onto a smoother ground, which was obviously some hard standing. I could feel all this going on. And then they opened the door of the ambulance. The ambulance stopped. They pulled me out. And then they pushed me into a presiding and a waiting chopper because there was this unmistakable downdraft and this sort of whoop, 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 whoop. And it was waiting for me. They pushed me in. They, they clamped the doors of the, the side doors on the chopper shut the chopper proceeded to start lifting and there was that side-to-side -side sort of slightly oscillating movement. And I knew I was in the back of a helicopter. I mean, I'd been in lots of helicopters in, in, as part for my service. So I knew what the sensation was and I knew that I was going up and away within the chopper. And I remember this doctor talking to me and saying, hey man, uh, we're, I'm Dr. Smith. Uh, we're with you, we're going to help you and we're going to get you to Orlando Regional. And, and he kind of kept going on. And he started to ask me various questions and I'm sort of, you know, what's your name and then what's your date of birth? I told him. And then I remember the third question was like, a, do you have an insurance policy? 
And I'm like, yeah, mate, I've got a freaking insurance policy, you know. And I remember being quite angry about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, that was literally, one, you know, one of the questions. Yeah, while you're at it, mate, who's paying for this? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Jesus. So it was all going on. It was like full-scale emergency response. And this was, if you like, where I got exceedingly lucky because if it hadn't have been for the odds of me getting this immaculate emergency medical response in Florida, and I don't know if you've ever heard about trauma victims for example and they talk about that golden hour in terms of emergency medical response yeah and if they can get the trauma victim from the scene of the the injury uh, you know the, the site of the the accident to you know a professional medical trauma facility within that golden hour the patient as and the, or the victim of trauma has got a much stronger likelihood of survival and in my case i was very lucky because it was none other than Orlando Regional Health Center, which is um, arguably, but I think realistically, probably one of the world's top tier medical facilities on the planet. They're very good at what they do there in terms of dealing with big burns. These guys are very well practiced, these doctors, these nurses, these specialists, because they get a lot of burns in the door there in Orlando, in Florida, because if, if you think about it, they've got not just aircraft but they've got, you know, Daytona, they've got Speedway, they've got all kinds of motorcycle stuff going on. They've got, it's an adventure playground, right? So people, are, because it's Florida, they're having barbecues. You know, I don't need to say any more on that front. There's sometimes a little bit of uh, misadventure and foolhardiness that go into, you know, men, young men and women at a barbecue, having a bit of fun and frolics, you know, a bit of alcohol is flowing. Yeah, so they're fully geared up for burns. For sure. So These you- guys know what they're doing. They're very well practiced in the medical sense. Yeah. They know what they're doing. And they helped to pull me, little old me, you know, broken, burned Jamie Hull, and they pulled me back from the brink. Despite that huge trauma that I described earlier on with the internal injuries, the burns, the fractures. and Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So they they go to work on you for, for like months, don't they? So you get put into a coma that, you know, we've... We could do a whole nother podcast about all your injuries, but I think people get the picture that you, get picture. you were absolutely smashed up beyond repair was, in most cases. I was an off-the-charts type yeah. trauma. How long were you on a coma for? Six months. Six months. Can you remember, obviously, when you, you wake up, can you remember when you first saw your mum? Yeah, so this was actually not in Florida. So I'd, got, I'd been shipped back in a medically converted Learjet back to London Stansted Airport and then um, blue lighted in the middle of the night because I remember some of this I was sort of in and out of consciousness 
they'd kind of kept me drug induced back across the Atlantic for the flight. But when I got blue lighted down to Chelmsford, I vaguely remember, you know, the, the sort of airport and the smell of kerosene and mm. everything at Stansted Airport on the runway. Blue lighted to the um, reception, if you like, for the Burns unit. So what they call Central Burns unit for the UK at Chelmsford. So right, this was interesting because suddenly I've got this Essex nurse sort of bending my ear and more or less, you know, all right, Jamie, we've got to get you moving now. We've got to get you sort of up, sat up in bed. And I'm almost like, you know, what the, you know, what's going on here? And I was confused. I was really confused. Remember, I've been laid up for such a long time and predominantly drug-induced. They're very clever at what they do with the with the kind of the analgesia to kind of keep you under that that kind of narcotic sort of effect. You don't know what's going on. You really don't have a Scooby. You don't really remember much. It's just little snippets. And I can remember you asked the question. I can remember seeing my mother for the first time, and you know, eyesight was a bit hazy and and trying to process it all pretty hideous. And for me, that was where the real work began in terms of my uh, very survival and orchestrating my own recovery and having to metaphorically pull my socks up at that stage mm. and work with the doctors, work with the nurses and really fight for it. Sorry to interrupt. We'll be going back to Jamie in just a moment. Coming up on next week's show, we've got another incredible story. It's with former SAS soldier and our most popular guest ever, Ollie Ollerton. So anyway, we're off somewhere else. You know, we, we've gone back, you know, because it's now we're handing over to the interrogators and stuff. And we get this, <laughs> we get this message. <laughs> That Sam Burgess has taken over the vehicle <laughs> <laughs> and is driving this freedom bus to nowhere. <laughs> We'd like, what? You are shitting me. And yeah, no, it really happened, Jerry. I think they had someone around the neck, the driver around the neck, and oh, it was, it was <laughs> brilliant. Where are you going? Thanks for listening. Let's get back to our conversation with Jamie Hull. When did you realize the extent of? The changes pretty early on actually the nurses probably for good reason um you know one of these um kind of kind or you could say evil essex nurses but no i mean i see why they do it they um she brought in a mirror and she said to me we're gonna have to get you sat up in bed and then more or less in the next sentence you're gonna have to look at, have a look at yourself because there's been some pretty significant change and you need to see what you look like now given what you've been through you've had a lot of grafting done and I still had a lot of ops to go through, a hell of a lot of operations. I remember the first time looking in the mirror and nurse was holding this, uh, you know, the, the frame of the mirror and, um, and I'm trying to process it. And it did not look like me. I mean, I looked really, face was heavily swollen, blotchy, really red scarring. And it looked pretty, in my opinion, it looked pretty hideous. And I, I sort of draw comparisons to, you know, sort of I looked akin to kind of like the elephant man's brother. And for, for real, honestly, I, I just processing that was a tough one for was that me was that is that me is that what I look like and honestly it was really it was upsetting I won't I won't deny that mm. and I had to kind of get used to all that and it took time it took it took a lot of time you went as far at one point to head up an organization in Switzerland yeah for real so there is a, as a, as people know when you consider that your life may be in dire straits and of course most people you know, that's perhaps if they're at the end of life, you know, they've perhaps got to the sort of senior years if they're perhaps that fortunate. But some people who are really struggling do consider that as an option because obviously we don't have licensed euthanasia in, in this country, certainly. And there is an option, as we know, through uh, an organisation in Switzerland. And I did consider that road. So that said, I made approaches. 
and I wrote emails back and forward and they were, I did start a kind of a dialogue and a correspondence. And luckily, little did I realize that it's not an overnight process, probably for good reason. Mm. Um, but I was sort of, you know, a good few stepping stones into that process and very much considering um, the prospect of assisted suicide because frankly, of what I was up against. So to put you in the picture, about one and a half years on from the, the incident, from the accident, I was in a really bad place in terms of physical recovery and the, the healing was, in my view, probably happening, but I couldn't really see it. And I was riddled with kind of skin disease. I had like MRSA, you know, which is a, it plagues um, the hospitals in general. Now it's in most sort of medical institutions, it's, you know, the bigger medical, medical facilities, they can't really get away from it. They can keep it as clean as a whistle, but kind of MRSA and sort of C. difficile and all these other sort of type infections can get in. And if you're very vulnerable, in my case, with large open wounds, it's like the barnyard door is wide open. Everything can get in. And so my skin was vulnerable and I was infected. And this was going on for months and months. And I was in a bad way. I had, remember I had large open areas. I mean, I looked at my right shoulder from what I could see and it looked like a lamb chop, you know, when oh. you've just taken it out of the packet before you, before you decide to sort of put it under the grill. And I was sick of the pain. I was sick of being in the fight. And I, I described this as being, it was like a boxer in the ring, right? But I was like a professional boxer, but I wasn't on round 12. I was on like round 4,100 and something. Yeah, you wanted and to. And I just couldn't yeah. keep up this pretense of fighting, of scrapping every single day, dawn till dusk. I was so sick and tired. And believe me, I challenge anyone that's in that kind of position physiologically and then not knock on mentally, psychologically, trying to keep that up every day. It was just, it was just so uncomfortable. And the obvious for me, and it sounds like a, a bit of an, an easy cop-out, but when you're in the fight and you don't see any light and you can't see a way out, in my case, it was just an obvious solution. And it was maybe a comfortable way to go. Well, I didn't want to be in pain any longer. I didn't want to fight. I just had enough. And, and literally, if someone had, had said to me, all right, mate, I get it. You know, and if you said to me, I've got a car, I've got a driving license. I get it, mate. I'll help you. I, I, I will hold you by the hand, figuratively speaking. And I will drive you out there and sort of support you and see you through this. How about it? I'm telling you, man, I would have bitten your hand off for, for such an offer. Didn't pass the belly... Was it Pastor Billy that helped you out? Yeah, so I had an intervention at a similar sort of time. So this was about 18 months on. And I had a gentleman from the church. He came and from a, invited through probably a contact, a friend of a friend or whatever. And this guy tipped up. And at first, you know, I thought, who the hell is this guy? He was, a, he, was a, he was a black guy from the church. And I was expecting, when they said he's coming from the church, I was expecting this guy, I don't know, perhaps, a, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but I was expecting perhaps a, uh, maybe a white clergyman in the, in the dog collar, right? You know, from from a local church or whatever. Maybe an older guy. I, I don't know. Mm. But this black guy came in like ordinary civvies. He looked pretty smart, sort of, but casual. You know, he had like shirt, jeans, maybe a leather jacket or whatever. Quite, a, you know, cool looking mm. black guy. He said, "Hi, pleased to meet you." He said, "My name's Pastor Billy." And he said, "No, no, no, no some friends of yours have sort of invited me to come and speak to you, and I hope that's okay." And I sort of taken aback because I just didn't expect that. And um, and I said, okay, yeah, interesting. Tell, tell me a little bit about yourself, Pastor. And he told me that he was from a, a, a parish or a congregation down in, um, 
I think it was Zimbabwe, in, down in deepest sort of Southern Africa. And I got to know him a little bit over the course of time. So he came for several visits, this guy. And believe me, I wasn't in the frame of mind at that stage to really be entertaining anybody. But there was something about him that sort of I took to. Yeah. Nice guy. And he managed to sort of get on a bit of a level with me. And I liked him. I maybe liked his casual nature. The fact that he didn't put me under any pressure. He didn't seemingly want anything. He wasn't trying to persuade me the obvious to kind of toe the party line and keep fighting. He didn't suggest anything. He more or less said to me after several visits, you know, I get it. And if, if you want me to help you, I'll take you. And when he said this, it sort of, my ears sort of, or what little ears I've got sort of pricked up. And I'm like, you serious? For real? You'll, you'll help me. You'll sort of take me out. You'll hold my hand. He said, yeah, I will. But he said, but, and the ultimatum was, and I guess looking back, this was quite clever. Pastor Billy sort of turned around and said to me, but I want you to do something for me. And I'm like, okay, what do you want? What can I possibly do for you? And he sort of said, I want you to hold on for like one calendar month. And I was pretty taken aback. I was pretty horrified by this. And I already put up this pretense, this massive fight for like 18 months. Who was he to tell me, you know, what I should be doing? He said, I'm sorry, but that's the deal. He said, you hold on for one calendar month. And if you're still in the same thought processing, still in the same frame of mind, he said, 100%, I will help you. I will be there for you every step of the way. And I sort of shrugged and thought, okay, well, fair enough. And we sort of shook hands, as it were, like men. And off he sort of trundled. And I had his number, right? Had his number. So I had the option to call him. Anyway, let's just say that things kind of passed by the by. Pastor Billy went off. And I had a, actually had an op, a big op, like the following week, I think, with my, my Burns consultant, my surgeon, the next week. In, in, so this is Stoke Mandeville, right, for the, for the, as far as the, the journey goes. So I'm in the Burns unit in Stoke Mandeville in Aylesbury. And I'd been there for all this, for many, many months, been living in this Burns unit in my own isolated room, single room on the Burns unit. And my surgeon said, came in sort of one day wagging his tail about a week later after the Pastor Billy sort of exit. He was really kind of happy. And he said, listen, he said, uh, I've got good news. He said, I've got um, some skin. Like we've got like an order of skin coming. It's like almost like a, it sounds a bit of a joke, but, you know, that's how it is in the hospital setting, mm. you know. He said, wagging his tail and really excited. I've got this skin. It's going to help you. He said, I'm, I'm excited about it because it's a, it's a good amount of skin. And I think this is what we need for your op. And it's going to give you the short, relative short-term cover that you need for your own cells to heal. And that's kind of how it works with these skin graft ops. So I said, okay. And I'm sort of like, this was like one of many, many dozens of ops that I'd already had under general anaesthetic. But we did. We went through the motions maybe a week after Pastor Billy. We had the op. And then several days later, maybe four or five days later, the nurses do the routine, their bit, their drill of taking down my dressings for the first time, maybe five days after the op with the consultant. And they look at my wounds and they can visibly see a marked difference. And my wounds are starting to close in like really quite significantly, quite dramatically for the first time in maybe 18, 19 months. And then they were like, wow, this is amazing. You know, you are really starting to turn a corner here. And they were feeding me all of a sudden with this rhetoric, with this hope about this kind of newfound condition that my body was starting to suddenly manifest, right? Mm. You get the picture. Mm. I'm starting to improve. It wasn't overnight, but I'm starting to improve. Yeah. That was like, boom. That was like the pinprick of hope that my primate mind if you will needed once i got that pinprick of hope 
The light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. That I could then focus on on the long dark tunnel that I'd been in, and suddenly I see the small prick of light at the end of the tunnel, and I can start slowly but surely sort of burrowing towards that. And it didn't happen overnight. I want to emphasize that. And I kept pushing and I kept fighting and I kept tolerating the pain day after day. But I was improving. And if you like the tunnel, the light in the tunnel was getting bigger and I knew there was going to be an exit point and I was going to be better one day. Shit. So then then you get to the end of the month and things have changed, things have turned around for you. It took time. So in a nutshell, six months drug-induced in Florida following that fateful incident in 19th of August, 2007. So I woke up in February 2008. I was in Chelmsford for a couple of months on the UK Central Burns Unit. They shipped me to Stoke Mandeville to be closer to my family who could come and visit, etc., etc. You know, mum, dad, brother, sister, friends. And I was on the, the Burns Unit in Stoke Mandeville for, I think, about 16 months, which is more or less a record for a Burns guy, I think, even to this day, to give you an idea of, you know, the, how significant it was for me, the recovery. And then also I went on to a string of other hospitals um, to East Grinstead in Surrey for about a month um, for some specialist work. I was in High Wycombe for some orthopedics work, which is bone surgeries for various bits and pieces. Cambridge for various specialist plastic surgeries in Addenbrooke's. And the journey was, honestly, it was a long, dark process. To date, so fast forward, 2022, I've had 63 surgeries which is ironic because I was 63% third and fourth degree burn. Oh, good irony. But I've had 63 surgeries under general anesthetic, meaning the doctors, the consultants have put me to sleep, all those anesthetists, if you will, 63 times in order to repair me version 2.0 of Jamie Hull. And I call it version 2.0, like the new software, because that's what it feels like. Because I went from being like the old guy version 1.0 and it's like the insult and the change that i went through and if you look and, and compare the old photos there's me you know this sort of like relatively ordinary sort of you know fairly handsome you know younger self and i went through all these massive skin graft ops so there has been quite a significant visible change to my appearance hence why i like to describe myself as version 2.0 so after all of that how are you now like are you because i know your story but people may not realize you've gone on to do some pretty extraordinary things like actively wise so how is how is the body and tell me a little bit more yeah, about what I mean, you've been I, doing honestly i'm i consider myself blessed because you know who knows what the prognosis might have been you know given that kind of injury i mean i didn't know whether for one i'd even ever walk again especially when i found out that they'd stripped out a lot of the muscle in my lower limbs and i had this bilateral foot drop you know this partial paralysis and that's a bitter pill to swallow, you know, from going from a, a badged SF guy mm. to, for all intents and purposes, disabled. You know, it was, a, it was a tough thing to swallow. I never knew how much, you know, physical capability I would have. But I've been fortunate. I've gone on, all right, I'm not the athlete that I was, but I've gone on to be able to do some long-distance walking events. I think I've walked about three f- official marathons. I've climbed lots of mountains around the world from Kilimanjaro to sort of mountains in Asia and, and, and sort of in, Ameri- in, in, in the Americas. And uh, I've done Race Across America, so that's on a push bike, the Ram. How the far is that? Ram. That's 3,100 miles. Wow, wow. I didn't wait. do it all by myself. I was part of an eight-man team with um, the charity Help for Heroes a number of years back now. But um, Bobslang? You've done Bobslang? I did uh, Bobsled. I got trained as, um, as a pilot for Bobsled with the U.S. Olympic team in um, 
the bobsled track at the Olympic Park in Utah. I've been pretty fortunate. You know, I've had some great opportunities through various kind of charitable networks from Blesma, British Limbless Sex Servicemen's Association, Help for Heroes, as well as both of those charities have taken me under their wing and they've supported me. Uh, I've had some amazing like respite as a result and some strong recovery opportunities. But a lot of it's been down to me. I want to make a point of that. So I think a big part of the reason why I've, I am sort of quite blessed now looking at it is because I've worked tirelessly at my own recovery and I've not taken it for granted. So when I recovered and I got mobile, I didn't just, you know, go down the pub and sort of feel sorry for myself and drown my sorrows and think, oh shit, you know, I don't look so good anymore or, you know, life as I know it is over and those opportunities have gone. I'm, I can't soldier anymore. You know, I can't do the careers that I loved anymore. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I decided to realize that, okay, on one hand, the toolbox is, that original toolbox is gone, but not completely. The toolbox has just slimmed down. It's just reduced. And that's the, the, the way that I looked at life. I might not have such a comprehensive toolbox, but I've still got some tools in the toolbox, right? And I can still work accordingly. It's an amazing way of looking at yeah. it. Yeah. So the toolbox is slimline and I'm still capable, but not quite as capable as I was, but I can still do things with the slimline toolbox. And with that, I explored what I could do. Not so much what I couldn't do, but what I could still do. It's not a boast. It's just to say that I was able to do a lot of these things through still having a hunger within me, This, as in Jamie Hull version 2.0, possessing the hunger to trial new things mm. and then seeking out the support and the element of um, specific sort of training and support that I might need to do to do certain things and, and just to keep, if you like, putting my best foot forward and, and having a go. And you're not always necessarily successful first time around or the process to learn a new skill might take that little bit longer because remember, you're carrying a bit of change or disability with the body, but things can still be done and you just need to think outside the box. One of the things that I was quite proud of in recent years is that... Um, well, two examples, actually, is one, I was able to go on and retrain as a pilot, but I did a little bit of light aircraft, but realized that in all sen in all sincerity, the dream of becoming a co commercial pilot wasn't probably a reality because I, I wouldn't pass the class one medical now because of sort of eyes and ears specifically. But I won a scholarship, actually. I, I got selected to, and won a scholarship through Boeing and I went on to, to, to license and fly a hot air balloon and I was in the training in Italy. Really? I, yeah, I really enjoyed that process to go solo again in the air yeah. and to sort of be sort of, you know, reading the map and, you know, manipulate the balloon at various altitudes to take advantage and exploit different sort of wind levels. And, and it's the earliest form of flight. So for me to learn that and get the scholarship and kind of get the, get the qualification was, it was a, it was almost like a, a surreal moment really post injury. So that was a real challenge and, and something that I'm quite proud of. And then also with my, passion for scuba diving which is an age-old passion that goes back to my younger years long before injury in recent years i i worked fairly diligently and i went forward for i put myself forward for a selection process and got picked up for paddy course director which is like the highest level within the recreational dive industry Amazing. so i teach at uh, sort of a quite a high level now and i like to give something back so i now work with wounded soldiers wounded individuals from time to time uh, who, different disabilities and I'm just about to work with a guy 
who got hit really hard in Afghanistan, actually, and lost both of his limbs. And he got a traumatic brain injury. And I'm taking that gentleman out to the Bahamas. Jamie Hell, thank you so much for coming on the show, mate. You're an absolute inspiration. Some of your stories, or your story, incredible. And if you're listening to this and you're enjoying this interview, make sure you go and buy Jamie's book. It's called Life on a Thread. Trust me, you will be inspired. And don't forget, I'm always looking for amazing guests to interview like Jamie. If you've got someone in mind, drop into my DMs on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks again, Jamie. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you.